Thank you for listening to The Highway to Well. In this podcast, there's a technical glitch around the 23rd minute. Luke is discussing speaking in Hawaii and redefining work-life balance to work-life harmony. It's a compelling story. We appreciate your understanding. Welcome to The Highway to Well. We're talking with Brian Luke Seward, regarded nationally and internationally as an expert in the field of stress management, mind, body, spirit, healing, and corporate health and wellness promotion. The often-traveled Luke can be found across the world of TEDx, PBS, college campuses, and corporate trainings. Luke has worked with some of the most recognized companies and organizations in the world. He's authored 16 books, including Stand Like Mountain and Flow Like Water. I first met Luke when I was at the National Wellness Institute and the National Wellness Conference. And while his expertise and skills are unmatched in the field, it was the sense of connectedness and gratefulness that his participants had after they attended his programs that showed me his true gift. He's been a dear friend since, and I'm grateful to have him here on the highway to well. Today we'll talk about digital toxicity and navigating a tech-focused world. We'll route our path from the dangers of tech to the value of the human heart, and how love and compassion are pathways to empathy. Thank you again for listening. Let's get on the highway to well. Derek, um, it's great to be um, invited to your uh, your podcaster. Thanks, and it's great to be uh, working with you again. Um, so about 10, 15 years ago, I came across an article by one of my colleagues, Larry Dossey, uh, and, and the headline of this uh, editorial was the, the term digital toxicity, uh, FOMO, and digital dementia. And I read that with great interest because I thought, this seems like it's got the word stress written all over it. And... What I got out of the article was this whole concept, which he didn't really uh, allude to. Well, he alluded to, but didn't really say was the whole idea of addiction to technology and smartphones. And so uh, I, I know the addiction process very well because I was raised by two abusive alcoholic parents uh, who have since died. And my two sisters also were very much involved with alcoholism. And so I, I know the process pretty well, but I thought to myself, this is a new social addiction. And um, I also came across about the same time an article by um, Susan Greenfield out in England. She's a... Um, a neurophysiologist and was talking about how the constant use of, of uh, technology surfing the internet is rewiring our brains for stress and I thought to myself this is it this is the um, uh, the problem that we're going to have on the forefront and, and that was before the real uh, adaption uh, by society to use smartphones. I think back then they were still using flip phones or the smartphones had just started to become into vogue with Apple uh, Apple's uh, phone uh, stuff there. But anyway, it's become a lot more now. I mean, you know, I don't, for uh, for lack of credibility or, or perhaps credibility, I don't own a cell phone. Uh, and so it's kind of funny to actually watch people when I travel. You know, I'm at the airport in Chicago or, or New Jersey or someplace, and you know, people look like they're Captain Kirk with their iPads, their iPhones, and the laptops all spread out. And and someone's phone rings, and 40 people grab their phone thinking it's for them. It's it's pretty kind of humorous, actually. Uh, and what I notice is the whole Pavlovian response. You know, when when the bell rings, people don't celebrate; <laughs> they just grab their cell phone. But I'm really concerned because um, at the same time I was um, reading this article, I was asked to do a talk in corporate America about insomnia and stress. And I had come across some research that said that 
the light in the um, the screens actually is coming into um, the pineal gland to reset the body's um, circadian rhythms to throw it off so that they're not producing melatonin for sleep. And we have a huge problem in this country with the lack of sleep. And cell phones are definitely a, um, a problem. I should start off by saying I am not against technology. I think it's great. We could not do this whole uh, podcast about technology. But the, the thing I mention wherever I go is healthy boundaries. It's not that technology is bad, it's just the behavior that goes along with it. And it reminds me of this one cartoon, Derek, I saw years ago, and it makes even more sense now. This guy's going to work in a spaceship, kind of like George Jetson, and on top of his glass dome is a coffee cup mug. And down below the cartoon, it says, new technology, same mentality. And it reminds me that with all this new technology that we have to make life better, we still have the ego, we still have um, our, uh, our four and things, and so um, the drama of, of the, the human story unfolds uh, with new technology, and we still have uh, you know, things like addiction and, and um, rudeness and incivility and stuff. And so, uh, uh, by not having a cell phone, it's actually kind of funny to watch. Although I got to tell you, we definitely have some problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that first of all, that is impressive that you don't have a cell phone. Like you should. I hope you're taking memoirs on life without a cell phone because. That may be a bestseller for anyone who has one in in struggles with, you know, over the over the years, you know, our first few cell phones were meant for messaging and phone calls. And that is no longer the case by any means. And so interacting in a world that has so many opportunities for input output or information sharing and for a lot of us, and you talk a lot about this is the tether to our work and what does that do for us if we didn't have a cell phone it is almost impossible to be as tethered as we are but just having a cell phone and then uh, as organizations have become sophisticated enough to make sure that you have all the technology you need on that phone to be working anywhere um, and having access to all your files and everything that you need that has made um, it's it's that concept of is it making us better or more productive because you know that that's the intent, but that isn't really what the result, at least across the board, the research doesn't necessarily show that that's the case and that that in and of itself is a problem with the technology. It's a productivity side, but then you get into the tethering and the stress. And what does that mean for us in our ability to um, balance our lives? And, and so that, that concept has been challenging. I, I, uh, in no matter what our ideas are, and I, I try to not be tethered to technology, but it is absolutely mind-bendingly difficult sometimes to not be thinking about work when you shouldn't be, you know, because of that access. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I agree. First of all, let me go back a page here. Um, you know, I can recall back in about 1991 or two or so when cell phones first came out and people had them in their cars. And the comment was, um, I'm only going to use this for emergencies. If I'm out driving and there's a flat mm-hmm. tire or something like that. And, and I thought, great. You know, if I was uh, you know, driving late at night and on the highway, I would want to have a, a, a means to call AAA or the police or something. But have you noticed now that every time a phone rings or a text alert comes or something, it's people act as if it's an emergency. And in that, with that regard, 
people are engaged at, at a low level of, of the stress response or fight or flight. And so, so then you, you add this idea that um, we are what is known as the electronic leash, the, uh, the smartphone where people are always tied to their work. And because we live in a 24-7 society where um, people have uh, corporate affiliates and various continents around the, continents around the world, um, th- th- there's this need or a, a, a sense that you need to be tied in all the time. And as a consequence, people are engaged in the fight or flight response um, at a low level but still engaged not giving themselves a chance to relax. You know, we talked about um, email stress. I came across a study that said that when people get 50 emails, that, that that's the limit where you can uh, tolerate 49, but 50 puts you over the edge, and as they call it, email stress. And I think to myself, I get 50 emails, mostly junk emails, um, in the morning when I wake up, I, I, I take a look at my computer after I you know, have breakfast, and it's like, wow, I've already hit the demarcation for stress right there. That's mentioned all they're going to come in the next day. And you know, it used to be with, um, with uh, regular mail, you knew when it would come. The mailman would come at a certain time, and you'd plan your day accordingly. But now you can be accessed with the idea of accessibility anytime, all the time. And our human bodies weren't designed to be like this. You can't be on all the time. You can't be stressed all the time because ultimately it's going to have an effect on your physical health. And what I typically say is the body becomes a battlefield for the war games of the mind. Oh, yeah. The, it, is, it is definitely a challenging environment because of that stress response. And, and so what I want to, I want to kind of go through a couple things and and make sure that we we're touching on all the bases here, but I know you have written a lot um, and Richard Davidson's work here from, from university of Wisconsin and Madison, his work on neuroplasticity um, has become a very popular, um, his work on mindfulness and meditation, like explain to us what the importance and the role that mindfulness plays in us trying to better manage our stress and, in our tethering to our digital lives. Yeah, good point. Well, first of all, um, neuroplasticity is defined as um, the uh, rewiring of the the brain's uh, circuitry for uh, for any number of things. I, mean, I first came across this concept back in uh, the Olympics um, with uh, specificity of training for uh, high-caliber athletes back in the 70s. So it's not a really a new concept, but what's new is the terminology, and what's new is the application for, for um, meditation and specifically mindfulness. But um, your leader, your listeners should realize, and everyone should know that that neuroplasticity can be done with any kind of skill development. And people who are surfing with a, a smartphone, that actually can lead to neuroplasticity too, where basically the wire, the brain becomes wired for stress. So what I typically say is that if um, digital toxicity is a poison, then mindfulness is the antidote. And what I mean by that is that we need to take time to unplug from the technology. Uh, turn it off, put it in another room, and then take time to sit quietly and just focus on our breathing. Uh, you know, that's the beginnings of mindfulness right there is just focus on your breathing. But basically what you're doing is you're giving your, your body a chance to, or your mind a chance to um, uh, calm down. And really what we're doing is trying to, um, I love the metaphor for this, is to um, domesticate the ego. 
<laughs> and you may have noticed that uh, that technology is great for triggering ego responses. I mean, every time someone posts a selfie or something like that, there's some level of ego. I, I saw this one meme that says, um, if you're going to feed the hungry, great, feed the hungry. But if you're going to post about it on Facebook, you're really feeding your ego. <laughs> so, so the whole idea about mindfulness is really to domesticate the ego. Um, anything after that is just a bonus in terms of uh, lower heart rate, blood pressure, things like that. But mental clarity is definitely a, a bonus too. But, but really we want to try and uh, do this because we live in a culture of distractions. And all this technology, as great as it is, is very, very distracting. I mean, you now can actually find out any bit of information at, at any moment, which is Absolutely, um, uh, very impressive. I mean, like you want to know what the weather is, where you're going to travel next week, you can go check it out. If you want to know what the stock market prices are, you can check it out. If you want to know what the headlines are, you can check it out immediately. And this whole idea of immediate gratification is also part of built into this um, this ego response. So, so back to mindfulness. Um, I'm a real big advocate of this. I, I practice every day myself for about a half an hour every morning, just to sit quietly and focus my breathing and, and try and clear my thoughts of, of all the distractions that come my way. And um, I can tell you right now, I uh, if I don't do it, for some reason I get sidetracked, um, by 3 o'clock I start to get a headache. So I notice that uh, there's a, a training effect going on like that too. But all the athletes do this, all of the professional athletes and the, the Olympic athletes, they call it mental training. You know, that there's different names for this. Mindfulness is a the nice buzzword right now. Uh, but I got to tell you, there's a reason why it's, it's so big in the corporate culture because – I'm of the opinion people in the corporate world, in any worksite setting for that matter, is very clearly aware that you can't be tethered to technology all the time, and yet the expectation for productivity is such that if we're not doing something, you, know, you throw in the puritanical thought processes, we're, we're just not um, worthy. So we, we stay plugged in and, and, and uh, as much as possible. The first thing you do when you wake up in the morning is grab your cell phone and see what, what news alerts or text alerts have come your way. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it's, it, we start talking about <clears throat> methods for productivity and sometimes we're fighting against some of our own, our own deep understanding of, of what works and what doesn't. Like, you know, we, try to be accessible because we all work in environments where people are all over the place. The corporate environment is diversified and dispersed across different states, regions, cities. And so our need to be connected has increased and to be connected at any given time has been increased. But I appreciate, and and I I believe, you know, David Honeycutt, um, the previous um, President of Wellcoa, Wellness Councils of America, was a big proponent of this, and I know I've I've heard some other groups that have done something like this, but they uh, they've un- they understand that productivity and um, success are things that need also some time. Whether you call it mindfulness or whether you just call it a your uh, quiet time or some other time, but they have offered or have built, have employees build into their schedules at the work site, certain blocks of time where no meetings can be scheduled for that person or that group of people. And they are, um, they're expected to leave their desk and not be on their computers or their cell phones. And they, and I, I think David was the one and this is why I probably remember it is I think he gave all of his employees a journal to take them and as they're sitting and thinking 
they have the opportunity to just write. And that is a that takes a, a real leap of faith in your employee productivity measures to understand that your productivity is probably increased when you give people time to process. And you now I was talking with another group about some of the ways that they've gotten employees to solve problems. And one one thing that they figured out was if they gave their employees an extra 30 minutes of lunch, which cuts into their productivity time on a time measured scale. But what they found was that if they gave them more time to just talk, they were solving problems in bigger and better ways so that when they went back to work, they were actually being more productive in reducing costs and increasing goods because they had a little bit more time to talk and figure out problems that they wouldn't normally have. And it's, you know, you take these two, these two processes that are actually taking time away, um, but they're increasing the opportunities for people to be engaged in their work and in, in, in that mindfulness process, which they're not normally, they're not going to do it on their own unless it's been given to them because everyone feels the pressure of trying to stay tethered, stay, fun- stay active and being on your computer means you're probably active and doing work. But those are things that, as you've talked about it, you know, those are the, those are things that are increasing, you know, we flip it around to talk about health. Well, those are that tethered, and, and being in the accessibility and all those different measures that we look at, those are the ones that are also increasing health problems. And so we can counterbalance that sometimes with just being a little more thoughtful about the mindfulness process, whether for whatever, whatever you want to call it, just a little bit more understanding that that's how things get done. Yeah. You, know, you just remind me, I, I saw this article recently about um, creativity because I'm a real big fan of the creative process. I think it's it's great. And also, I think it's a great coping skill for stress. But um, they, the, the gist of this article was that if people don't have downtime, time where they're not plugged into something uh, like a screen device, then they're not as creative. So creativity, part of the creative process is to have this quiet time, almost like a sense of boredom. And you may notice that, that one of the things that um, we see today is that people, the minute they feel bored, they open up their, their smartphone and start you know, checking out sports scores or something. So, um, so boredom is an essential part of the creative process, or really what we say is just quiet time or stillness, the, uh, the lost art of stillness, mm-hmm. very important for this for and of course creativity is is um for many people's minds part of the, the productivity equation yeah we've we there are a couple of people i've been working with on developing uh and and the tough part is trying to get organizations to understand this but a creative time off as part of your wellness programming at the corporate site so you know typically we boxed and we continue to do this. We box wellness programs at the corporate level into um, event-based or participation-based activities that are usually involving physical activity, nutrition, or blood work health. Like I, I don't necessarily always call those things health-related, but they involve your health at some level. So you're getting some information off of screening, or you have to go to a lunch and learn, or you have to do a, a step program or you know, these are, these are the things we typically box into wellness, but like you just referenced and creativity is one of the most essential ingredients to living well. And so if companies would offset the cost of having say a thousand employees do a health screening and provide them creative workshop time on a quarterly or annual basis, they may find that first of all, employees would be exploring in their own way, their own personal avenues to help them understand 
their own to allow that creative process to um, increase their health through all the endorphin release and go through all, I don't want to go through all the science behind it, but understanding that creativity is important in that regard, but it also gives them a chance to connect with each other. And it also shows them at that corporate level that the company does care about their health in such a way that they're willing to do this for them, which is always a really nice plus for a company to let their employees know they care about them. But we've neglected some really essential ingredients in when we start talking about wellness, we're, we're neglecting a lot of the most important things for the sake of just being able to count something. And that's been not necessarily the best path. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I typically say that wellness is so much more than broccoli and aerobics. And, um, you know, it's very easy to take a look at the physical domain because it's the easiest to measure, you know, height, weight, blood pressure, cholesterol. We can even measure the DNA right now. But that is a limited view of wellness. And if we don't acknowledge the, the mental, the emotional, and the spiritual components, and I think creativity is part of the spiritual process, uh, then we're doing an injustice to the whole um, concept of wellness. And so, you know, what I typically say is a lot of people with their wellness programs are stuck in the t- to actually get up to the 21st century and, and realize that we're well beyond Brock and aerobics, or I suppose people <laughs> could say today, kale and CrossFit. <laughs> that, that's, that's about what it's changed to. That's about what it's <laughs> Yeah. And that, that's, um, if you look at what in, in, this is what you talk about so often is uh, our ability to, to, manage our health is often such a different path. And it's been refreshing to see over the years that research has continued to show like isolation is such a critical factor for our health and stress is a critical factor for our health. And so those have been added to the list of factors that we need to be looking at. However, when we start diving into those, they're so complex that it's easy to get lost. And so I think at this, at this next phase, I, I, I'm really hoping that there is an enlightenment on, on the boots on the ground levels that we, that we live in. And, you know, and this is work that you've been doing for, for a very long time. So it's still, and, and again, I was asking you about this um, is, you know, we would start talking about our workforce and, you know, in 2005, you were writing about our workforce on the brink. And a lot of that, I want to ask you, like, how much do you feel like has changed? And are there still these common themes that regardless of how much information we learn, we're still not able to get that enacted into practice? Yeah, we're still on the brink, and uh, as we joked about before, um, some people might say we've actually gone off the edge without a parachute. Um, you know, I'm concerned about that, and as I have been before, uh, that hasn't changed. But I'm, but I think that at some point um, we're going to see some kind of um, rebellion. People just saying, you know, enough is enough. And of course, the the mantra right now is is um, we need work life balance. And I got to tell you, Derek, I was asked to give a presentation out in Hawaii on work life balance, but the guy who brought me out said you can't use that term because it doesn't exist. And I said, what doesn't exist? And he said, work-life balance. And so I said, okay, let's call it this. Let's call it work-life wisdom. And then one of my colleagues said, you could also use the term work-life harmony, where we've got to have a sense of healthy boundaries. And so what I'm really not seeing, and I want to get across that is the concept that we've got to have better boundaries with, um, with, with the technology, with, um, 
But that's what wellness is all about is boundaries. I mean, whether it's with eating habits, whether it's with exercise habits, whether it's with people, now we can toss in uh, technology. We've got to have better boundaries about how we engage with this and, and learn to disengage. And by not having boundaries, we get walked over and then you have got victimization or victim consciousness, which is another form of stress, which just perpetuates the whole stress response. And, you know, what really concerns me is, you know, back 30 years ago, um, when I first got in this business or so, so, um, you know, you, I talked to some of my students and they'd say, yeah, my grandfather's got this disease and my grandmother's got that disease. Now I'm seeing people in their early 20s saying, I've got that disease. And we're talking chronic illnesses that people in their 20s should not be having. But this is a result of a sped up world that with is, which is full of distractions and the inability to have healthy boundaries and say – spend time with my family. You know, back to Hawaii for his foreign to him. He said, you mean I don't have to, to talk to my employees at nighttime because I can not, I can refuse phone calls after a certain hour. I said, yeah, I said, I, you might want to stop taking phone calls after seven o'clock and, and dedicate that as family time and personal time. It was a foreign concept to him, but he was so elated by it. He actually enacted a healthy boundary to his company that said no phone calls, uh, work phone related phone calls after seven o'clock. And he goes, I'll answer them when I come back to work the next morning and he said that he sleeps better and his blood pressure has gone down no surprise here but but again healthy boundaries being very very important yeah and the, the whole concept you know i i love talking about the combination of boundaries and in addiction with the technology that we have and um i read a phenomenal book over this past year called zuck and so one of the things that I came out of that of that reading was just how significant and in like in almost in a way impressively built algorithms are behind all of our social media technology. And so you start with, and this gets back to what we were talking about earlier, you start with that ego response or whatever is drawing you to be using your technology and then you you place or you you say facebook for example you go onto facebook and facebook is completely built to work information into your feed that is based on clicks it's based on things that you have preferences for and that every single piece of information that's on Facebook's page is being used to determine what kind of information should be sent to you. And so out of, out of that process, what we've, what the, the troubling aspect of that is that you've built these content um, bubbles. You've built these, these ways that content is being oriented and it's all based on excitable clicks and that endorphin that, you know, that same release, in a different way. Now it's being calculated and it's being um, compartmentalized and it's being counted. And, and that has had a massive toll on our worldview. For me, that is what I look at is, and going back to my, my academic training in sociology and cultural anthropology is thinking how massively impactful in a bad way <laughs> because of the freedom of this information and, and how it's being used. But how is that impacting our society and culture? And then what does that mean for us at an individual level, trying to navigate the, our, our world in a way that we can decrease our stress? 
Yeah, boy, there's a lot to, lot to chew on that one. Let me just toss out two things to the listeners here. And uh, one is that um, if you, <laughs> this is a mixed message, but if you get a chance, uh, Google uh, brain hacking uh, with um, 60 Minutes, and that the host of that was Anderson Cooper, and he talks about the whole idea of how all of these people behind the scenes, whether it's video games or or uh, online shopping or whatever, are creating algorithms, like you said, uh, specifically for your taste and your personality to get you hooked. It's all about the hook. But um, uh, another thing I like to recommend to people to try and see is a Netflix movie called The Big Hack, which is all about how uh, Facebook sold the data to um, Cambridge Analytica to, to basically the thwart our uh, democracy, and yeah, it's, we've got some problems here. There's no doubt, uh, de- no deny it, no doubt about it. Uh, but but going back to uh, the whole idea of, of how things are designed behind the scenes to uh, to get people hooked into this addictive process, I think is really um, uh, disturbing. And I think if people are aware of it, then they're then the spell can be broken. Uh, and again, technology is not bad; it's how we use it. And again, I come back to healthy boundaries. Yeah, I in uh, that part is probably the biggest obstacle for anyone is the is the creation of boundaries, you know. But also, and and I think this is something that we don't talk enough about. Although it seems like to me the research is continuing to show, but that that loneliness in a world that is supposed to be as connected as it is, in a world that. Um, every social media application program, they all pretend or explain that they're bringing people closer together. And that's, you know, often Facebook's common theme is that we're bringing the world together for peace and harmony, which is opposite of the result. However, on a, not so much on a bigger scale, but that scale of loneliness and what, what are, how loneliness is increased over this period of time of connectedness and what does that mean for our mental health and well-being and so that that avenue what what do you see is a struggle with the people that you're working with and do you feel like that this loneliness quotient this loneliness issue should be at the prominent you know it should be at the forefront of our discussion when we start talking about technology yeah, definitely much. I've seen a lot of research that shows that the two biggest issues that we're dealing with right now in terms of health and well-being is alienation and isolation. That's the loneliness factor. And um, I even saw George Will wrote an uh, editorial about this. And, and uh, I'm not a big George Will fan, but I thought it hit the nail on the head. So, yeah, so there's been a promise of, of uh, being connected, but it's an illusion. It's a virtual connection, which is not the real thing. And as a consequence, uh, we're really lacking on some of our social graces there. So, but but when we see alienation, then this leads uh, an isolation. We see this leads the um, down the path to potential depression, and then we see an increase also with um, suicide rates in all demographics, more so than we saw ten years ago or before the advent of the smartphone. Um, coincidence? I don't think so. So um, I know there's a lot of factors for this, and I don't want to just brush over it. And, and I know it's a very serious thing to uh, just give it a, a short amount of time to, but um, but I, I know that this is also part of it, and the whole um, aspect of bullying that goes on there too, and and such, and and um, yeah, it's it's, it's a quagmire, and it's not being addressed. So we need to, and also I, we should have to also mention the fact that um, there is there's an egotistical 
aspect to the addiction process, but there's also a neurochemical one. And the neurochemical one is dopamine. When people get a text alert, there's a, we now have proof there's a, a, a squirt of dopamine in the brain that is associated with the addictive, addictive process. We know this for, for a fact. It's a neurotransmitter. Uh, even if people think their cell phones are going off and they're not, they get this release of dopamine. It's called a phantom ping. And so um, so this addictive process is, is a little more complicated than we might normally talk about uh, because it's yes it's ego um, yes it's a process um, but uh, there's a, a biochemical aspect to it too that needs to be addressed so um, it's easy for me to say healthy boundaries I know that's not the cure but it's, it's a start and I think that we need to have a start somewhere yeah and I, I also I wonder for me, what I like to look at too is assessing also what what are we losing so in this in this world of connectedness and sharing information and it's safe to say and i'm going to be i'm going to generalize in a big way here, but because of the way that algorithms are built because of the way that we're sharing technology and news and because of the mediums that we can do that that we feel that um, we become more divisive as groups of people. I'm not sure if that's true in every aspect, but that's a common refrain, especially in a presidential election year. We start talking about the divisions and people in their groups hating the other group. And, and our president is, is on the stage calling everyone haters if they're not fans of him. So it's spreading messages whether you know we can debate the content of that, but I do feel that there's two things that I feel like are lost, or at least they're they're out there, but they're having trouble getting traction in a healthy way. And this is something that definitely terrifies me and bothers me. Love and compassion are two avenues that if we exported that more, and that's not that I it, this is where I say I'm being very overgeneralizing because I know that is happening. However our news cycle isn't always built on that. And our information that we are getting at our fingertips is rarely built on that because it doesn't have as many clicks as hate. And so oftentimes then all we're seeing is the negative things that are going on, but that does have an impact too. So it's while we think, you know, we, that impression and is very impactful and that impression can lead us to feeling a certain way. And so if we feel like everyone is divisive and hates the other side, it makes it hard to find room for love and compassion. And I know that you've wrote this about in, in, in this is something that you've talked about for, for a really long time too, is a, is a heart as a healing mechanism and talking about emotions and the toll that it takes. And so the heart as a center of, a place where we feel love could be better suited if we if we redirected our attention and the love our love and compassion. I feel like those are things that are getting muddied or lost in this in this big conversation about the way the world operates right now. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. I, I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, the way I teach stress management is in, a, in a, a soundbite is moving from fear to love and compassion, and. Um, there's a lot of fear in the world today, a lot of anger too. Um, but, but I think that ultimately, 
um, we need to rise to our highest level of, of potential there. And this is engaging in the, uh, the aspects of, of uh, love and compassion. And, and I often say that there's a lot of colors in the rainbow of love, you know, humor, uh, forgiveness, uh, optimism, uh, lots of ways in which we can express love. And, and this is also part of the, the wellness component that uh, is often neglected, the, the spiritual component too. So, um, yeah, so where are some interesting times? We're, 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 I think Earth is a big school. We're being put to the test right now uh, about uh, how we can uh, move through this gracefully. And indeed, uh, love and compassion is, is a, a big part of this process that um, needs to be addressed. And I see more people um, open to this, I think, because they realize that where we're going is basically a dead end. I mean, greed and uh, ego boosting is is uh, is part of the process, but it's it gets you nowhere at the end of the day. So, um, helping our, our fellow human beings, um, acts of compassion, ki- uh, random acts of kindness, uh, these are very very important because ultimately, uh, at the end of the day, this is what our, um, what it all means and what it all comes down to. Yeah, and there's a there's a couple ways that that I feel like if we when we start talking about love and compassion, it, um, for me, there's something there that I would love to talk a little bit about here and, and tie it in. And that is a feeling of place and purpose. And so love is something that takes a lot of energy. It, it takes our ability to be um, forgiving, to be compassionate, to be open-minded to being accepting it requires a lot a lot more work than it does to just be angry and hate something um but the benefit is better and compassion too takes a lot of those same ingredients but it it means that you have to develop a sense of empathy and understanding that someone has a different way of thinking or way of living than you do and that our ego um isn't going to supply all the answers to everyone's life. And so, and that's, I think that's a challenging message in the, this, this cultural hegemony of, of worldviews of what, how things should operate and and our current political leadership isn't always, isn't ever really the best at trying to help us be empathetic in that way. And so if our prevailing message is lacking empathy, then that's a, that's a huge challenge but I also feel like those are two things that also help when we have a better sense of place and purpose and um, finding purpose is something that, you know, Vic Strecker and, you know, and also, and a lot of others in the field have really been talking about lately too. Um, but you, ha- I, I read an article that you had written recently about, about um, tri- hugging the family tree of humanity and, when I read it, it, it's beautiful. And, but it also, I think what people, if people would anchor themselves and this requires a lot of practice and meditation and, and, per, and intentfulness towards that mindfulness practice, but to just think about where we have come and those that are part of our families from prior generations as you write in this, in this piece, this, this beautiful piece. But I think if we were, if we understood that anchor better, then we would develop empathy. And if we, if we can develop the skill set of having empathy, then love and compassion become a lot easier. 
Yeah, most definitely. Um, uh, boy, <laughs> a lot to chew here too. Um, you know, going back to to mindfulness, I just want to kind of circle around for a second because when people begin to practice mindfulness, and we begin with something very simple, which is breathing, then we can go into um, uh, uh, body scan and stuff. But ultimately, if you get to that point where you're you're um, beyond this, then you move into the idea of compassion, saying love from your heart space out to the world, and the real um, foundation of mindfulness really is based on the concept of, of love and compassion, which we don't normally teach uh, in corporate settings initially because, uh, you know, it's corporate settings. We kind of begin with real simple stuff like just breathing, diaphragmatic breathing. But but really, to circle back around, yes, the, the mindfulness definitely has a wonderful component of, of compassion-based uh, awareness and and, um, and thought processes there. So, um, yeah, so uh, uh, Hugging the Family Tree, I was um, inspired to, to write that based on the idea that a lot of our stress is is uh, trauma that's passed through generational issues and things that we carry with us. And we now know that we do carry things through our DNA. And so the idea is that we can begin to uh, to work through that, to process it, to forgive those people in our family tree that thought they were probably doing the best at the time they were doing it, uh, but now uh, is no longer serving us and it's become baggage and it's time to let that go. So um, part of this idea of compassion um, says we need to uh, basically um, engage in the golden rule, treat others as we want to be treated. And I love that you brought up empathy because I'm seeing a lot of, of uh, mention of this right now on social media saying that, that Americans, but I think it's even a, a bigger problem than just uh, Americans, are losing the sense of empathy. And, and this will happen as people become more ego-based with their their level of importance and, and trying to get their name out there and become relevant in the world there, you know, whether it's with their um, – uh, the activities they do or postings on social media and stuff. And I love also how you brought up the whole idea of purpose in life because this I see as the issue of the decade, coming back to a sense of purpose in life because a lot of people um, – feel as if they don't have that, and we now know that's a cornerstone of spiritual being, back to the, the, the bigger component of wellness here. And so um, I see this coming up time and time again from a lot of people in corporate America that, that um, in the, the bathroom talk, the locker room talk, the, uh, the cafeteria talk, what you hear is people saying, I feel as if I've got no purpose in my life. And um, I can tell you right now that people um, who have had heart attacks uh, the ones who survive um, typically talk about a fact of lack of purpose, and so we see that spiritual health can impact physical health, and and this needs to be addressed on a much bigger scale than we're doing right now. I mean, broccoli aerobics only gets you so far. <laughs> that that is, I I wish I could put this on a loud siren and send that message throughout all of corporate America. I'm, working, you know, I, I work in corporate wellness a lot and it's such a challenging conversation to get a company to move to offering these, like it, for lack of a better way, just say a program or anything that it starts to explain and get people on a path towards finding their purpose. I mean, what, what it, it it's an individual path. I, every person needs to walk through this process, but we in the field have done a lot of disservice by not having this at the center and at the forefront of our conversation for a long time. And so we've allowed wellness to be defined and, and kind of compartmentalized and siloed off as, as, as broccoli and, and, you know, steps and in all these different avenues that we, um, 
I don't even know what we're searching for. Sometimes it's just some metrics to say we've done something, whether or not it means something is not as important as the fact that we've done it, but the purpose piece. And, and I've done, I've done a couple of things with some groups and they've been tremendously helpful in getting people closer to finding their purpose. And, and part of that is understanding and having a deep appreciation for the roles that you play in your life. What are the values that you hold to? What are the things that you think about when you think about you at your best? And then draw, do a lot of drawing, draw out something that it, it draw an object that you think you are. And, and, and I remember having a couple clients, one drew, it took him a little while. I remember watching him just sit here and think, and then all of a sudden he went to work and he drew himself as a hammer. And so I had him explain, well, so why are you a hammer? He goes, well, I, I'm, I feel like I'm at my best when I'm building stuff. I'm a builder. Wow. And in the, right there, there's the anchor of that person's life is he loves to build stuff. So every, every avenue that he is on, you know, or everything that he's involved with, if he's in the building part of it, he is a happy, happy person. And if he's a happy person, he's probably taking care of himself. He's probably doing a lot of these other things that we're asking or checking off for people to do. So, you know, I think, you know, we talked earlier about that creativity component. And sometimes I think when we start talking about finding purpose, it's, it's scary and it's hard to figure out how do I, how do I do that? What do I, what tools do I need to find my purpose? And that's not an easy concept for some people, but if, if we can help push them a little closer to understanding who they are, the purpose becomes a lot easier for them to envision and then enact and move on. Yeah, Joseph Campbell, a great mythologist, would say, follow your bliss. But really mm-hmm. what it comes down to is, um, you know, what's of interest? Where, where are your interests lie and, and um, how can you pursue that? Um, yeah, I, uh, well, I had about four things I wanted to share with you. Now I can't think of any of them. But um, <laughs> <laughs> the purpose in life is so important. It, it, it really is. And I think that... Um, um, uh, it, yeah, we definitely need to get this back on the, on the wellness map for sure. Um, I was going to tell you that, you know, when I was doing this work 30, I don't know, 40 years ago now, it's, maybe it's been four decades. I, I can't believe I'm saying that because I don't feel that old. But I was told by people whose names I won't mention, but your audience would recognize <laughs> that my work was fairy dust. Uh-huh. And, I, and now they're not saying that. Now they realize, maybe with a little bit of, of, of mileage on their own career path, they realize that, yeah, purpose in life is, is important. It's not fairy dust. And relationships is important. It's not fairy dust but spirituality I get it now yeah it's not fairy dust but but I gotta tell you right now that um, this is essential um, again um, <laughs> uh, rocket aerobics important but it's not the whole picture no it's it's not at all and I think you're you're hitting on the most important things that we need to be discussing and that's why I love having these conversations you know with you and and your work has been so instrumental in keeping this at the forefront and like I said even years ago when when I was at the conference and and I would see people come out of your programming recognizing that these people just made their lives better. And a lot of that is what you're training them and, and what you're working with them on in terms of stress. But no doubt when I when I reflect back and think about who do I know? Like what what people do I know who do a good job of of finding their purpose? And I think of people that, you know, like the people that would go to your sessions and, and feel like they're on their they're on a better path now to what they love and it's deeply connected to who they are it's tied to their values it's important to them that's not rocket science i mean it's really not but it's so important to where we need to go 
Yeah. You know, and we haven't even addressed the whole um, aspect of um, uh, addictions with alcoholism and opioids and things like that. But I got to tell you, I got an email from somebody who happened to come across um, something on Facebook and he recognized my name and he sent me this message and he said, you know, I, I heard you speak 20 years ago about this topic of spiritual being. And he said, um, I just want you to know that um, I've been 20 years sober since I went to your talk. Oh, yeah. And I, I just, I got goosebumps something like, cause you never know who you affect. And, and, and one person's comments may be equal, you know, a hundred people out there, but, but, um, there was a huge problem out there with substance addictions too. We talked about, you know, uh, the press addictions with, with uh, technology, but there's all kinds of addictions. And I think when people, um, are given a, a cookie cutter approach. Uh, it may work for some people. It's not going to work for everybody. But but I think that when someone says that they've actually processed some of the information of of uh, a spiritual growth uh, and they've no longer are um, an alcoholic, that's huge. And and I should tell you, you know, it's a huge problem with with drinking and such um, in the corporate world. The world is in general, so we need to pay attention to that. And it's easy to focus on on cholesterol and and um, and, and body weight because um, they're safe topics. But I think we tend to steer away from things like alcoholism and drug abuse, or even the the ripple effect of, um, of people whose families are affected by the opioid addiction. Um, yeah, we, we've got a lot of ways to address it, and that's one reason why I love the topic of wellness. It is so multifactorial. Um, that we can actually spread the wealth very far in terms of, of the wisdom of what we have to offer. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that we, I think in the future, when I can get you back on, we should talk a great deal more about addiction and, and, and mental health and the, all the role, all, all the different avenues where we in our, our field have the opportunities to be helping people if we direct some of our attention and, and even get something, some more information out on the forefront. So people are paying better attention. And, and I think, I think that tide is turning a bit like, like you mentioned, you know, people that um, years ago weren't, um, weren't accepting of some of the things that you were talking about are very accepting and understanding and appreciative. Now, you know, those, those times have changed, but the we're early in that, we're way too early in that process to think that we've accomplished much of anything. And, and like you said, you know, the corporate world is a mixed bag of reckless and, in, and dangerous activities and things that we're not, we're not really uh, approaching wellness in a proactive way to make the change that we want to see made, despite the fact we're spending a lot of time and money and effort in ways that we think we're impacting. And, and that isn't always the case. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a couple of uh, books to toss out only because I think that um, the listeners here might be uh, interested, and you may have heard these before. But there's one book I want to mention since we talked since we talked about purpose in life. I'm a big fan of the work of Viktor Frankl, so we got to mention and honor him with his book *Man's Search for Meaning*. If you've not heard this book, I highly recommend you pick it up. And if you have heard of this book, even if you read it, pick it up again. It's a short read. Real quickly, Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist who had written this manuscript called *The Doctor and the Soul*. He was on his way to the publisher 
with his manuscript when he got picked up by the SS troops and hauled off to Auschwitz, where they took away everything, including his manuscript. But he had this idea that said, if you have a purpose in life, you can get through any stress. And he saw his theory um, played out in Auschwitz for three years before he luckily survived and then came back out to write what he remembered in his manuscript, which is now called The Man's Search for Meaning. Another book I want to mention to you is um, called Irresistible by Adam Alter. And he is a social psychologist who's been looking at the effects of digital toxicity, digital uh, um, addictions, and has a great book called Irresistible, where he talks about how these companies use these algorithms to basically hook us in and keep us hooked in, and also, at some point, it all comes down to money, so um, people are forking over their credit card numbers and stuff like that, but um, but um, we're seeing more and more um, books come out on the topic of digital toxicity, digital uh, aspects there, and again, um, what I often say is that there's been a huge uh, experiment with no control group. I mean, other than me, um, I'm not sure many people who don't have a cell phone. So, <laughs> so I'm a control group of one, yeah. which is not a reliable standard uh, deviation, I might admit. But, um, but anyway, there's a lot of good books out there. Another good book, I want, we haven't even talked about this topic, talk about digital toxicity. There's a book called uh, Disconnect by Deborah Davis, and it's all about the um, ELFs associated with uh, the microwaves of, of cell phones. And of course, we could also talk about 5G now too. So just just be aware that there's a whole level of wellness that at some point we can address down the road with uh, the microwaves and, and brain waves, mm. and the two are not compatible. But a lot of good information out there. Um, I love to, I may have a cell phone, but I definitely read a lot of books. And so uh, a lot of great information out there. And um, also um, send you, Derek, an article I wrote about um, the spiritual um, breakdown with um, cell phone addictions. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'd love to see that article. And um, and we'll, uh, it sounds like we need to have another podcast here soon because there's a whole list of topics that we just covered that we need to we need to talk about and give it its its due here on on this highway to well podcast but luke i'd love to come yeah i want to ask you if there's any any other last kind of wrap up pieces anything that you want to toss out here as we uh get close here to finishing yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of what I call cosmic gossip. So I'll uh, I'll put this under that uh, um, auspices in the sense that it, we're in definitely challenging times right now. We're in times of of uh, great, um, uh, I guess, uh, human growth and awareness. Um, we're going to see some ups and downs on the planet, and I think that what I tell people is is um, take time every day to meditate, take time to uh, to be still and to honor yourself, to unplug from the digital world long enough to catch your own breath and focus your attention on uh, what's really important there. Um, we're going to see some ups and downs, but I think it's important to stay grounded. I'm, a, I'm an optimist, and I think that we'll get through this just fine. I love the words of Joseph Campbell when he was asked by Bill Moyers, um, is the human species on a hero's journey like the individual? And uh, Joseph Campbell said, well, yes. And Bill Moyers said, are we going to make it? <laughs> and Joseph Campbell said, he goes, it's a bumpy road. He goes, but I know how the story ends. Oh, that's excellent. That's excellent. Well, thank you, Luke. I appreciate and uh, and grateful for all the time and i can't believe how much ground we actually covered today but i'm looking forward to having you on again soon hey that'd be great thanks yeah thanks Dirt. yeah thank you take good care all right see ya bye, bye.